it's really my pleasure, a very special pleasure, uh, to be able to, first of all, share a little board moment, is what we've been calling some of the sharing, and then to introduce our speaker. Um, this year's Alan Keith Lucas for this year's Alan Keith Lucas lecture. It's special because I had the privilege of being a student many years ago, as Rick has just proved, um, in his classes at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, uh, where he at that time taught uh, courses in social policy and in child welfare. He was a tall, stately English gentleman who smoked a pipe. And he challenged us and always to think, you know, as we say today, out of the box and to um, be cognizant at the same time of the, the power of the faith and spirituality in all of the work that we do in social work. That was just very impressive in that time. And in many ways, he was, I think, ahead of his uh, times in really uh, challenging us to translate our faith beliefs into practice behaviors, as we refer to in special work education today. For example, you know, in Christian thinking, we, re we think about God the Father as our creator and, and brought us into reality. Well, for Keith, social work practice requires that we really have skills in entering into the reality of the clients that we work with. You know, again, in our faith tradition, we think of God the Son, you know, through his life, death, and resurrection as really uh, being our Savior. And he challenged us as social workers to really engage with skillful empathy with our clients. You know? And finally, you know, we think of the Holy Spirit as the transcending force that helps us to do what we need to do every day. Yeah. And Keith would, uh, would challenge us that so central to what we do with clients was to provide genuine support for the uh, directions that they chose to work toward. So the real byword was re reality, empathy, and support. And these were key concepts for social policy as well as for practice. Um, he also emphasized community building, which has been uh, talked about here many times today really building meaningful relationships with one another. And we not only talked about it, but we lived it. For example, our child welfare class wasn't conducted in the school. It was conducted in Keith's house. Okay? And we sat by the fireside, and his wife, Jill, would feed us starving students uh, with uh, chocolate chip cookies and chocolate and all of those kinds of things. So the takeaway message about child welfare was that the welfare of children has to be thought about in a home-like environment. Now that was really very, very uh, important. And so he really strongly emphasized that we experience the concepts that we talk about and that we study. And so I share these memories about Keith because it's the Keith Lucas lecture, but also because I, and because he was a, a pioneer, a leader, in the whole development of NACSW. But I think that he also, this notion of translating our faith into practice and of combining that with community building with one another has been so central to my experience of NACSW over the years. So what I hope, and I think what is, is I can speak for the board in saying that we hope that during this time together that you'll experience that kind of translation as well as that sense of community building, whether this is your first meeting or whether you've been an old-timer uh, like myself and others who are here. And so as we move on today, to help us in that whole sense of translating and community building, our Alan Keith Lucas lecture for this year is Dr. Mary Van Hook. And Mary is currently Professor Emerita at the University of Central Florida School of Social Work. She's a clinical social worker, social work administrator for over 20 years prior to teaching in various universities. And she's published and presented widely in the areas of rural mental health and social service, women's issues, both domestically and internationally, family services, and religion and spirituality. Dr. Hook uh, received her undergraduate from Calvin College, her Master of Social Work from Columbia University, and her doctorate from uh, Rutgers University. 
She was also the recipient of the Victor E. Howery Award for the Na from the National Association of Rural Mental Health and the Distinguished Service to Christianity and Social Work by NACSW. Dr. Hook is a member of, uh, of NACSW, the National Association of Social Workers, National Rural Mental Health, and she's a licensed Master of Social Work and a member of the Academy of C Certified Social Workers. You probably noticed that on the Lyceum uh, uh, table, her uh, work, Social Work Practice with Families, a Resiliency Approach, is um, being featured. So building on some of the work that we've done in, in, uh, in the conference so far, Dr. Hook is going to address us on spirituality as a potential source for coping with, with trauma. So Dr. Hook, it's um, our pleasure to have you with us, to know that you're one of us, and, to, um, and that you could be here with us this morning. So please welcome Dr. Mary Hook. I really appreciate it. It's a great honor to be chosen. I was actually thrilled when I got the letter asking if it, and you know, you're walking in the footsteps of some um, people who contributed so much, some of whom I have had the opportunity to talk with you, and I know Frank Raymond's here somewhere, and others that, who have also had the great privilege. I was asked to talk about spirituality as it relates to trauma. And what I, what I want to do first is introduce, oh, oh, excuse me, what I want to also say is don't worry about trying to take notes on what's happening here. An article as part of the agreement will be coming uh, subsequently in the journal, which will be a lot more detailed than what's being presented here. Or if you can't wait and you're not going to get it, um, I'll send the script to Rick and you can get it through the, through the office. So don't bother trying to take notes. Anyway, what I want to introduce you is the people that I've had the privilege of knowing, as well as the vignettes that I created that are from the local newspapers or from, from various sources. So let me, let me introduce you to some people. Mrs. R. was a 15-year-old Jewish girl when she was captured by the Nazis after fleeing the German troops in the streets of Brussels and placed in one of the concentration camps, the medical experimentation unit. She witnessed the deaths of those around her. One day, she was forced at gunpoint to dig her own grave. This very young and inexperienced social worker was too traumatized by her story to ask how she managed to survive. Mr. J, a 42-year-old married man and father, was working below a car in his automobile repair shop. Suddenly, the mechanism prompting up the car broke, and the car crashed down on Mr. J. Fortunately, it stopped just seconds and milli-inches from crushing his chest. While injured, he was not killed, but terrified by the event. Mrs. L was captured by the North Vietnamese and placed in prison. They wanted her to return to her people as a spy. She carried a knife with her to commit suicide if they tried to rape her. Under this pressure, she developed a catatonic state and was released to her family. Subsequently, the family tried to flee as part of the boat people, if you remember back then. They were beaten and robbed at gunpoint. The family then tried to swim to the boats. Soldiers were shooting at them from the shore, and one of their family members was killed. Kanisha, her mother and siblings, were watching TV. When the doorbell rang, she let her father into the room. He pulled out a gun and shot and killed her mother, swung the gun toward the terrified children before he shot and killed himself. John was on patrol in Afghanistan when they faced enemy fire. An explosion knocked him unconscious. He awoke later in the field hospital to learn that other members of his patrol had been killed and he was going to lose his leg. Susie, age 13, was being sexually assaulted by a youth minister in her church. She was afraid to tell anyone because he had told her that no one would believe her and would just laugh at her. The M family, Mr. and Mrs. M and their young son, learned that a tornado was heading their way. 
Lacking a tornado shelter, they took refuge in an inside closet. Mr. M sheltered his young child with his body. The tornado tore the roof off the house, and the falling debris killed Mr. M. Mrs. M was bruised, shaken, and grief-stricken at the loss of her husband and home, but relieved that her son was still alive. Her son was not physically bruised, but terrified. Mr. J was carjacked by two men with guns. They threatened to kill him, and they later beat him severely and left him for dead as they took off without his car. Fortunately, he was found in time and received medical treatment. Maria, age 14, ran away from a troubled family situation. She was befriended by an older man who took her in, gave her food and gifts, and promised to take care of her. He quickly turned into a pimp who demanded that she have sex with customers he brings her. When she refused, he beat her and threatened to kill her if she does not obey him. Afraid of him and not, turned where, not knowing where to turn, she was coerced into the world of sex trafficking. And if your newspaper is anywhere like ours in Orlando, it is replete every single day with people who have been traumatized. We've had, in the past month, we've had two men who, who shot their wives, co-workers, and then killed themselves, leaving young children. <laughs> anyway, despite the many differences in the cause of the threat, natural disasters, mechanical failure, war, human-threatening actions, their age, their gender, their cultural backgrounds, these individuals all share the experience of trauma. I <laughs> held my breath on that one. So what is trauma? Trauma events occur what? when a person faces the potential threat to their life, a threatening and a dangerous experience outside the usual human experience that were overwhelming and make people feel powerless and afraid. Trauma has an power to inspire helplessness and terror. Traumatic events can represent a single event or can be part of an ongoing pattern of events and actions of others. Um, and unfortunately, the number of people facing death in the theater of war, both military and civilian, refugees fleeing danger, daily news reports of people feeling threats of being murdered or raped, the hidden stories of children being seriously abused in various ways indicate that the experience of trauma is much more widespread than we might like to think. For, as I said, for some it's a single event, but for others it's a lifetime story without really sense that there's any escape from it. And as social workers, our work is a constant reminder of trauma, the lives of the people and the families we serve. As a result, we risk vicarious trauma as our work lives are filled with the stories of danger and evil. <coughs> so how is trauma experienced? It's experienced through our bodies, through our minds, through our emotions. And they're an integrated system, aren't they? So it's not only the individual parts, but also the interaction between these, our interpersonal life and our spiritual life. <coughs> So what's the impact of trauma on our bodies? Well, there's obviously physical damage created by some events, aren't there? There's a body memory of that trauma that went through. There's a sense of the loss of our, of our body integrity. There's a rush of the stress, stress hormones. And then there's the neurobiological impact that influences our emotions, our cognitive, and our behavioral coping. So what I wanted to first as look at children, the neurodevelopment of children, and I am not the strongest person out PowerPoint, and I was having trouble trying to get these in order. Okay, experience can change the mature brain, but experience of trauma during critical periods of early childhood organizes the brain system. Trauma in a young child can influence the trajectory of a person's life by determining then the functioning capacities of a person's brain. Children who have been traumatized frequently are at a baseline of low-level fear. That's life for them. That's where they always are. And they can respond either by this hypoarousal or by a dissociative adaptation. They're really not there. Um, 
Our brain is organized, isn't it, through a genetic and our life experience. The brain is use-dependent, so it develops its functions and its organization in a process that reflects survival needs. So if trauma is one's life experience, that then becomes the organizing frame of the brain and the neural system of a young child. Excuse me. Traumatic, the, um, the traumatized child experiences overactivation of important neural systems during sensitive times of development. And these systems become reactivated then when a child is exposed to reminders of that traumatic event. Those traumas that can be dreams, thoughts of, things that are almost peripherally associated, but to that child, they're associated with it. So that the child feels traumatized even when they're not in actual danger. And the child who lives in a constant state of fear then reacts to ordinary events as if it's being terrorized. Because in their, in their mind, that's what they're experiencing. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So the... The, the brain plays such an important part of our whole who we are, so it deregulates other aspects of the person. And it can result in either a child being very hyperactive, anxious, impulsive, withdrawn, a whole series of things. It's also reflected in dysregulation of the sympathetic nervous system. So we have an increased stress response, a neurocrine level, it studies then link pathways to long-term behavioral health and social problems. We see this in the people we work with, don't we? As we see individuals with the life experience of interpersonal problems, addiction, violence, impulse control, a whole host of issues that go on in people's lives. Okay, the neurological impact of trauma in adults. There are changes in the hippocampus and the cortex that create problems in integrating and synthesizing and communicating traumatic events, which is why it's difficult for people to remember it exactly, to pull it together, to regulate the emotions that are associated with, to tell you a coherent story of what happened. All right. What's the impact of trauma on our cognition? It destroys the person's fundamental assumption about the safety of the world, the positive value of their self, and a meaningful order of creation. It disrupts all of that. It disrupts our sense of the fairness of life, in God, in other people. It raises that question, why me? Raises issues of self-blame or lack of self-worth believing that one is deserving of punishment or mistreatment of damaged goods. I worked with a woman once whose father had um, psychotic breaks post-traumatic from when he'd been in the war. And imagine his children were Nazi soldiers and periodically he would go hunting them to kill them. That woman, her view was, well, we're all such sinful, evil people. If we have one moment of happiness, it's more than we ever deserve. You can imagine what life is like when that's your, your mindset of the world. Okay, it raises, I said, lack of self-worth, believing you're, you're deserving of punishment, mistreatment. And children are especially likely self-worth. You know, children are self-involved as they see the world, so they're going to blame themselves. It disrupts our memory. It gives us no memories or fragmentation. We have difficulty processing and describing traumatic events in an organized manner. So we have a vacillation between intrusive memories that we can't avoid and lack of memories for a logical narrative, that back and forth. And sometimes people experience an altered state of consciousness, a dissociation from the body and the situation, a translate state, like the woman that I mentioned in the, who was being held a prisoner by the North Vietnamese, went into a cataconic state in this kind of a traumatic situation. Okay. So what's its impact on our emotions? There's a threat of annihilation, isn't there? A sense of fear, helplessness, being out of control, an agitated state. What's going to happen next? 
and numbing, as just going through the motion. A new promise can prompt prior traumatic symptoms to reoccur. And we have a flight fright response in our emotions and our body response. Okay. The impact on their interpersonal life. There's great variation here. It can call into question basic human relationships, can't it? Sense of trust and connection. People under difficult times tend to seek first their first resource for comfort and protection, maybe their parents or maybe God. And when that doesn't happen, there's a sense of being abandoned. There's a distrust of other people. And we, people can withdraw from close relationships or seek them desperately. And I mean that word desperately is an important word there. People can fear of being abandoned or being attacked. They can feel fear their inability to control their own anger. They're just so overcome by it. They can feel they're without value in relationships. And children traumatized and early um, problems have a problem in establishing a trust and sense of self-worth. Okay. Oh, this is where I had a little problem with my PowerPoint last night. <laughs> Sorry about that one. Okay, I'll uh, tell you about what it says. Okay. <laughs> spirituality. Well, we'll move on to spirituality. It involves a people's sense of meaning, morality, their relationship to the transcendent, the world around them. For many people, as we know, spirituality is experienced within a religious context. So spirituality in your sense of meaning regarding life experience as a Christian, as a Muslim, as a Buddhist, or as a Hindu, for example, are likely influenced by the nature of our religious tradition. Okay, this is what I'm going to have to read part of you. Trauma calls into question assumptions about the world and our spiritual life. It raises ultimate questions about life and purpose. And while trauma and related suffering inevitably raise spiritual issues, the impact of spirituality in the life of a person who has been traumatized varies widely. People can experience a crisis of faith. How could God let this happen to me or to other people? People can turn to God or spiritual life for comfort, hope, and meaning. People can find comfort People can feel abandoned. Ah, funny. There is some up there, but it's just not showing. People can ask questions about the meaning of life. They can search for new meanings and purpose. People can feel violated at the very core of their being, their sense of their spiritual self. Studies have looked at the impact of trauma experiences with both, and have seen links with the both an increase in spirituality. Uh, a catalyst for spiritual growth and a decreased impact on religion and spirituality. And in the article I've got, you know, it's like a page and a half of different studies, which we don't have to go into now, but, um, but, what I, but the point being that you can't make any assumptions that this is what's happened with that individual. Even the studies are more than 10% this way, 20% that way. In other words, when you're working with an individual person, it's important for you to find out what does it mean for that particular person. Okay, so okay. so what is the role, how, what role can spirituality play in helping people cope with trauma? I think it's important first to look at the concept of healing. Healing is the process of becoming whole, of finding a new way to adapt, to compensate for losses. It recognizes that people can heal emotionally and spiritually, even if they cannot undo the traumatic event. A woman cannot undo the fact that she was raped. A child cannot undo the fact that they were abused. The soldier cannot undo the, the war, the carnage of war. No one can undo these things. But spirituality can be an avenue for the healing process. Walsh describes spirituality as being able to give meaning to a precarious situation, having faith there's some greater purpose or force at work, finding solace and strength in these outlooks. Pargamon and Brandt describe religion as helping to address the problem of insufficiency, which is certainly affirmed in trauma. When people are pushed to realize their fundamental vulnerability, 
religion or spirituality offers them some solutions, including spiritual support, explanations for difficult life events, and a sense of control. What I want to do now is to look at some of the positive Right, what I want to look at is some studies that were done in terms of positive spiritual coping strategies because they give us some ideas of ways in which spirituality can serve as a resource. And this is taken from the work of Hardiman, but many people have used his work, have used his concepts. Um, so, so these are some of the positive spiritual coping strategies that people report. Look for a stronger connection with God, that spiritual connection. Saw God's love and care, again, spiritual support. Saw God's help in letting go of my anger, a sense of, of forgiveness. Try to put my plans into action together with God, this collaborative partnership. Try to see how God might be trying to strengthen me in this situation, which is kind of a reappraisal, right? Ask God for forgiveness of religious purification and focus on religion to stop worrying about my problems. Okay, before I go back to What I want to do is to read you some phrases used by individuals to kind of describe some of these. Some of these are from African American survivals of Hurricane Katrina. So long as I got God on my side, I can't give up. Let God guide you and trust that he will lead you in the right direction. God is making ways for me, I pray. But that's in the context of somebody actively seeking a job and a new home, not just sitting there passively. He, the Lord, done give me strength. God ain't brought me this far to leave me hanging, a sense of meaning. I see the hurricane as an act of God, so I took it as a positive way. It brought families closer together and made us see what was more important. Religious coping can be part of developing a new meaning for the role of faith, as reflected in this paraphrase of a response by a man whose brother was shot and killed. I used to believe that my faith and God would protect us, would keep us safe. That's what I saw as my faith, the shield. So my faith was truly shaken through this experience. Now I see things differently. Because what my faith taught me was that I could overcome and handle this. I never felt I was alone in it. God was with me through it. Relationships with spiritual leaders can help provide a path for spiritual healing. As expressed by an African-American woman who had been sexually abused as a child. I've been going every week to talk to my pastor here, trying to search, you know, and heal some of the hurt just to gain peace and realize he has it in his hands. I know counseling and therapy does help, but God's the actual answer. But it's not all positive in the world of religious and spiritual coping. These are some other strategies that people use that have some rather negative consequences. Wondered if God had abandoned me. Questioned God's love for me. Decided the devil made this happen. Because these thoughts increase our sense of being abandoned, of being without support, of being a worthless person. And we know there's some religious leaders out there who like to view traumatic events for the individual, for the community, as part of God's judgment. You know, that hurricane was caused because of whatever. You can put that whatever. At least we in Florida have gotten a few of those comments from religious pastors. Okay. Um, these, as I said, children who've been traumatized can have difficulty maintaining their religious and spiritual beliefs. If we understand a child's sense of spirituality and relationship with God from an attachment theory, that God will protect it. Abuse to the child disrupts their spiritual trust and can lead to a damaged view in relationship with the divine. A child's sense of the ultimate environment can shift to one of suffering, chaos, resistance, evil, and fear, leading either into an increase that they will experience the spiritual
spiritual conversion or reject religion and spirituality as a coping strategy. Children can come to believe that the higher power is out to judge, punish, or condemn them, making them feel shame and guilt and negative self-esteem. Children can feel unworthy of God's help, feel tested by God. They feel angry toward God, blame God for their suffering, and wonder how a loving and just God could allow this to happen. When children experience trauma from parents, and we know this happens, these phrases like God is your father, your heavenly father, can create negative and judgmental images of God shaped by the parent. Experience with parents are both positive and negative, get transferred to their spiritual life. <clears throat> the nature of religious thought and practices prior to a traumatic event can be an important influence on the interaction of trauma and religion. People of a strong relationship with their higher power prior to the trauma are more likely to benefit from their faith and emerge with their beliefs intact, while those with a more tenuous or unstable religious attachment are more likely to lose their faith. But I'm saying more likely. These are more. It doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the case in every particular person. So what are some So how can spirituality help us deal with trauma? Hope and the context of hopelessness. Finding a sense of meaning, a belief in a power outside oneself, to draw upon the power of God, a higher power. A sense of power in relationships. God is on my side with the divine and grows in a person's strength to counter that sense of helplessness, vulnerability, and power. To grant a sense of self-worth and being cared for. To counter being devalued and dehumanized and the crushing of one's spirit. A path toward personal purification in the context of damage to the worth of oneself. Support, emotional and practical support from a community in the context of feeling abandoned and devalued. in understanding relationships through leaders and counselors to counter hurtful ones. Helping other people. Altruism. Giving back in the context to be made to feel helpless. Giving a sense of meaning and purpose. Rituals and practice that help access meaning and power. And hope for life continuing after death in some form, depending on the religious tradition, of course that offers comfort to family members. So how do we help clients access their spiritual resources? First of all, we have to open the door. And opening the door is the first step by inquiring if their spiritual life or their religious life doesn't have any meaning for what you're going through right now. Um, such as, and such a genuine inquiry and concerned inquiry helps open the door to these concerns. People might have think the counselor is not interested, or that it may not be of any relevance or value. And this goes beyond that little line on the intake form. My husband's been in the hospital a lot lately, and this little line check, you know, spiritual concerns, yes or no. I'm not talking about that. I mean a really genuine empathic exploration. Opening the door means that the counselor must be comfortable walking with the client on their pathway of pain, being willing to listen to issues of existential concern of the client, be able to hear what traumatic stories the client wishes to share. As I told you, as a young and inexperienced social worker, I discovered I wasn't able to hear how my client had managed to survive besides being forced to dig her own grave, and I had inadvertently changed the subject. At the end of the session, I thought to myself, I never found out how she got out of there. But I even thinking, I changed the subject. I wasn't ready to hear it. 
Opening door also means the counselor is self-aware of his or her own sense of spirituality. Careful not to use that in an inappropriate way with vulnerable clients. It means assuming the role of facilitator, not a director. Opening the door also means it's willing to understand various spiritual traditions and ways in which they might be influencing people are experiencing their world. Consulting with religious leaders or experts or studying can be useful here. Opening the door also means that we need to take seriously the need to take care of ourselves so that we don't risk the dangers of compassion fatigue or vicarious trauma. Mary Jo Barrett, in her discussion of relational abuse, discovered she lost her own sense of spirituality and spending days listening to other people who'd been traumatized and needed to find ways to restore her own spirituality to be helpful with other people. Okay. It's also very important. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Normalize, oh, providing safety. Um, People who've been traumatized need to feel safe and secure as part of the healing process. A realistic assessment is very important because we know too many women and their friends and co-workers were in the process of, lose, of leaving their abuser. So I said, two, two fatal incidents in Orlando, the one we just saw happened in Wisconsin all the past month. Okay, the young woman who's been trafficked needs to have a safe haven. Children who are being abused need to have a safe place to live. That represents a struggle working with a soldier who's going to have to go back to that combat zone, perhaps. People who've been traumatized also need a safe haven of relationships. Caring and acceptance offer spiritual support. Because in a real sense, caring relationships offer spiritual support to hurting and traumatized people. The world of the spiritual is mirrored in that of real-life relationships. Barrett's many clients who've been traumatized identified love as one of the two key elements in their recovery. Sounds a little bit like our speech last night, right? It ties right in, doesn't it? They were able to experience being cared for and in the process began to love themselves again. Within this safe haven, they began to tell their story. Normalizing people's trauma response. People say, am I going crazy? Am I losing my faith? What a terrible person am I? It, and then they're troubled because their certainties have been shaken and they begin to doubt them realize it's a normal and understand the response. That helps lift that burden that in turn is making it even more difficult for them to access their spiritual resource because they say, I'm a terrible person. Look at it. In addition to everything else, I'm beginning to doubt God. And I want to tell you a little story. This doesn't have to be as much. Well, these are traumatic events. I had a chap, chaplain friend of mine whose son died in a very sad accident. He was very angry with God. So he went out one day and he said, I have to have it out with God. I just have to have it out with God. He went out to the beach by himself and shouted his anger thought. Expecting, he wasn't sure what, maybe judgment, condemnation, whatever. Instead, he felt silence and acceptance. He told that story to a gathering in the agency where I was, it was a broad gathering, and one of our board members, a very devout man, very active in his church, not long ago had found his son-in-law dead in a one-car accident, beating his daughter, a pregnant teenage widow. That left him pretty angry with God, and he was feeling guilty about it until he heard the first person's story, right? He was subsequently visiting an elderly widow in the church who lost her only son who died. And when my friend Dick started telling her about how he felt what gone through, the sigh of relief, because then she was able to share how she too had been feeling angry with God and guilty. And I give this as kind of like a circle of healing from one person to another, right? Okay. So what we need to do then is to ask our clients if they want us to include spirituality in the counseling. 
That's always important with self-determination. With these people, especially important, because they've been left feeling that someone else is taking control of their life, right? And that's the nature of the trauma. So granting people critical decision-making power represents an important step in creating a safe relationship. Changes things, right? So how do we tailor our intervention to the client? First of all, you know, we've heard that term functional assessment, right, about this many things. If the client's interested, we can conduct a joint functional assessment, can't we? What aspects of spirituality could be helpful? What are some potential barriers to accepting them? What burdens might be represented in their spiritual life? This assessment process then provides a guide for an individualized approach that incorporates individual life experiences, spiritual and cultural tradition. It also identifies ways in which spiritual issues are linked with other life issues, interpersonal, self-image, sources of support. The client might describe important rituals, beliefs that offer hope or contribute to self-blame, other relationships that offer support or condemnation, the nature of their spiritual tradition, for example, the views regarding life after death, are very different from a Christian and from a Hindu perspective. What's the role of suffering from the perspective of their spiritual tradition? What are the rituals that can offer it? So what I want to do now is to look at some potential strategies. And I'm saying potential strategies. We've got the list here. But the selection, of course, depends on you and the client, which ones are appropriate and which ones you use. So this is just a grocery list of potential ones. Okay. First of all, we can identify some potential sources of emotional and practical support within their spiritual community. Excuse me. Oops. Sorry about that. People within the spiritual community are understanding who can understand trauma can be an important resource. When I was a student, social work student, I had a client who was very, whose child had been born without eyes, which is a very difficult experience for any parent. But there was this, another layer of meaning here. She had, this is a Catholic woman prior to Vatican II. She had been divorced outside of the church, remarried outside of the church. She'd been waiting for God to punish her, and this was it. God now is after, right? This is what had happened. Fortunately, my supervisor knew of some wonderful, caring Catholic sisters who worked with children with disabilities, and they went to visit her. And they were able to explain to her, God does not work that way. God's a loving God, so it's not a punishment. But because they came from within her tradition, those words were so much more meaningful than what some, you know, an outsider like myself could have offered to her. People can be so burdened down with self-blame that they are reluctant to reach out to potential sources of support that might be valuable. But counselors can be aware of sources that his chaplains, excuse me, faith groups with the demonstrated efforts of concern that offer support, practical help, caring, support groups, that might be useful. These programs, in turn, can make people feel valued. Refugees with a strong faith tradition can be helped by the presence of religious and spiritual leaders who can offer spiritual support and rituals that offer strength and healing. I read this really moving article about Kosovo refugees came here, which is a very strong Muslim tradition. The fact that they were greeted by their Muslim clergy and helped them the rituals back home was so incredibly meaningful for them. Okay, then we have knowledge. Okay, we have love, we have knowledge. Barrett's clients describe knowledge as the other important in healing from trauma. Knowledge regarding their world, themselves, and how to cope. This knowledge helps clients get a better understanding of the world around them, ways in which trauma has distorted their view of themselves, and how to cope. We can identify religious and spiritual coping strategies that are already helping people. Discussing with the client what thoughts and actions have been helpful. What meaning do they have? How do they help? 
they can continue to incorporate them in their life. For example, you said, I feel God's presence as a guide. Well, when does this happen? What's it affect? Are there ways you can draw upon these feelings when you're feeling caught up in that sense of fear? We're taking what the client has said, right, and we're elaborating, but we're helping them build on it. We can identify ways to address trauma-inflicted self-blame and self-hatred. Um, and you know, while self-blame is protective at first, you could say, well, it's my, you know, I could have controlled it. You know, if I had walked down that street, I wouldn't have been raped. It's my fault, you know. But we know that long-term, that's a very destructive way to respond. Cognitive behavioral and, and strength-based can be very helpful. Um, clients can be helped to re-examine their beliefs in terms of their spiritual tradition. What does the Bible say in terms of loving children? What does the Quran say in terms of judgment? Only Allah judges. What does this mean in terms of a Hindu view of the divine within the person? Which is a very ennobling concept of the individual, isn't it? If you include these statements in your response, I must be a bad person, this happened to me. Are there ways, how does that change your thoughts? Are there ways we can explore more affirming spiritual self-talk? Talk? We can look for support within the spiritual tradition that are affirming and comforting. One of the articles gave an example of a Mormon client reading from the Quran to help a Muslim client because that's the religious tradition that was important for the client. We can, you know, the old cognitive behavioral strategy, asking clients what they tell a friend or neighbor who gone through their experience helps clients draw upon their spiritual traditions in more healing ways. What would you tell your friend who'd been raped? Would you tell her it's your fault, that you're a bad person, um, that God is punishing her? Would you tell a what would you tell a fellow soldier who had been in an explosion and lost his leg? You know, it gives people a little greater sense of perspective. We can help clients identify some of their strengths. What have they been doing to deal with these feelings, these thoughts, and its impact, and how can we build and strengthen these? We can explore earlier life experiences of trauma and their impact on the current situation. Because I have a client once who described how she had been sexually assaulted as a child. When she told her mother about it, I mean, she was very young at the time, her mother said two things to her. Ask God for forgiveness and don't tell your father. Now you know the message that gave, right? And that's the message she internalized. So when as an adult, when she experienced the second kind of assault of trauma experience, it brought all of this back, didn't it? But she could be helped to realize that at that time she was a child. She didn't have any other framework for understanding this. Now as an adult, she can look back on it and reconfigure her understanding and her understanding. But helping people sometimes make these links from the past, how they interpret it to the present, frees people up. People can, as I said, can begin to evaluate their current situation and separate from their past. While a child is abused as small and powerless, as an adult, people now have new strength. They've got new people that can support them. Okay, the use of creative arts, music, stories are wonderful resources, aren't they? Particularly children. Okay. Um, involvement of parents and caretakers of children to give them the kind of support. Helping clients find ways to contribute to others. Forgiveness, once the immediate trauma is over and remembering that people make these choices, the worst thing one can do is to make people feel like they have to. They're feeling coerced into forgiveness. It's important to find out what are the kinds of messages that are coming to you from other people. Okay, helping people find, okay, let me go on. All right. What? In the article, I'm going to describe some treatment models, and we don't obviously have time for that, but I wanted just to go over some of the basic themes that are part of these amendments. An initial exploration regarding the role of spirituality and the life of the person. The counselor's respect 
for religious diversity so that we tailor it to their spiritual tradition. A psychoeducational component that helps people understand the impact of trauma. A safe haven for people. Efforts to alter negative cognition about themselves. Provision of a safe and caring relationship with a counselor. Efforts to help people feel comfortable in having reciprocal caring relationships with other people and help in developing and maintaining more effective strategies and coping with trauma. Okay, thank you. And as I said, you can later get a more detailed Time's a little bit tight, but um, we want to have a question or two. We do have a mic that we can bring out to you. So only um, maybe two or three questions. And I'll... My glasses on so I can actually see hands. Questions for Mary? Or, or suggestions, comments, contributions. Yeah, Anne? Mary, I just loved your presentation. It was almost like an encyclopedia of uh, everything we need to know about, about this whole area. One of the things I did wonder about is um, we, we here uh, have background in various Christian faith traditions, and you've also made uh, reference to other faith traditions. And one of the things that many of us have thought about is, are we coming to a time when we might uh, also need, for example, uh, a consultancy with other faith traditions? Because in many ways, we, we struggle to understand each other's. And, and as you pointed out, it can be so helpful to have the client think in terms of their own faith tradition. Well, I think you're right. I think we need whatever resources we can. Some years ago, my colleagues and I would put a book together and... One of my friends, social ecologist, was doing the Hindu chapter, who's Hindu. And as we talked, we realized, you know, the very different ways in which we were viewing things. And what I might have done have been helpful from a Christian perspective would not have been helpful for a Hindu client at all. Yeah, you're right. Thank you.